Sponsored by the Dunleary Ratdown Local Enterprise Office. You're listening to Business Eye with Joe Dalton and Simon Haig. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Yes, it is 2021. Christmas is over. The goose did not get fat this year because no one was allowed around to eat. One thing that I have learned about 2020, that I only get four haircuts a year. And that's the one thing that shocked me out of all the craziness that's going on. And I'm delighted today, really, truly delighted to have my good old friend, Simon Haig, my co-host on Business Eye, back with me today. How are you, Simon? I'm good. And Joe, I thought this was 2030. You're saying it's 2021? Yes, it's that cryogenics that we locked ourselves in and froze ourselves for a decade. And look, nothing has changed. Yeah, nothing no, has changed. I, I, I've, got, I've got hairier and greyer and uh, it's been a busy period, hasn't it? It has, it has. How was last year for yourself? Uh, Business-wise, it was a good year. Um, it was busy at home as well, adjusting to spending. I, I, I didn't realize there were so many ways I could annoy my wife, put it that way. <laughs> yes, uh, the, the list. We, here at home, she's after calling me Joey Jobs and it's Linny Lists. So <laughs> it's uh, all that stuff that I taught that I couldn't do, that I did. Like Actually, I built a decking. In 2020, I was surprised that I actually jumped on YouTube and built a decking out from the house and learned gardening and all the other stuff while we were doing business. So it was um, yeah. it was a good year. A lot of reflection, uh, a lot of compassion. And being honest, I think I've really, really understood myself as well more than ever before. I agree. I agree. It's been a real period of reflection for a lot of people. It's kind of a circuit breaker period, I think. I think it's the first time ever that all 7 billion people have had a chance to stop and really think in unison. And I think, you know, we're going to talk a bit about how that's impacted our guests' lives and, and the world generally coming up, but it's it's a unique period. Yes, and our guest today is Deborah Wilkes. She specialises helping uh, HR and communication uh, within, we'd have to say, Ireland and England and possibly the world. And then we have Raymond Hegarty. Raymond, what do we say about Raymond? Author, um, specializes in IT strategy than um, developing businesses to, I would say, better investment. Would that be, would I be correct in saying that, Raymond? Yeah, I'm working in the business of innovation. So all kinds of intellectual property around innovation. And you're correct that investment is very often the fuel of innovative companies. So ideas, investment, and the intersection between those. And Deborah, would you get you right as well, where we spot on and on introducing yourself? Well, I really um, specialize in developing leaders and managers. And I I do have a particular focus on those people in HR because that was my background originally so I set up and led HR functions before actually then setting up my own business in leadership and management development and what I'm doing now is kind of bringing those two things together so I do think that HR people are really important especially when you think about what's happened this year and they've had to respond to new regulations and so many things overnight 
they've really done a great job and yet sometimes they don't get the status that they deserve so that's kind of my my passion right now HR managers um, and directors are sometimes the people that get beaten up. They're that wall between the staff within a company and then the C-suite executives because mm. everybody was pounding at them. And, and sometimes they're the ones that C-suite executives have to share to give the bad news and send it down to the staff as well. Mm. It has been a strange year. Tell me on, on both of you, in your own opinion, how did 2020 work out for both of you? Raymond, let's start with yourself on that. Yeah, 2020 was a strange year for everybody. And I know that there was a lot of you know, dreadfully sad stories around the world. Um, I work in the business of innovation and the people I'm working with actually were busier than ever during 2020. So we were working to try and uh, continue to develop ideas and to um, capitalize on those ideas. So 2020 was very busy from that point of view. Raymond, that, that's interesting because, you, you know, I, I think this is a real pivot time and sort of linking Deborah and Raymond together. One thing that I think businesses are really going to have to focus on is this whole thing around cohesive growth. You know, we're all, we, we've never been more connected through technology and yet we've never been more disconnected because of the pandemic. And, and maybe, Maybe I'll ask you, Raymond, first. How, how do you think businesses, given that they've never really had to encounter this before, you know, I mean, the last pandemic, we didn't have this technology. How do you think businesses can manage cohesive growth in this really strange environment? And then maybe, Deborah, what, what do you think from an HR perspective? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And if you think about the concepts of working from home and, you know, video correspondence, you know, like we, we have digital correspondence with ourselves now as well that those things had been mooted by people for a long time. There were lots of people who were trying to push the concept of working from home. And then suddenly around February of March last year, everybody was plunged into this, whether they were thinking about doing it for the future or not. So there was an accelerated adoption of things that might have become inevitable over the last 10 years. People were talking about it and over the next 10 years that they would expect it to happen. And it suddenly happened over a period of about six weeks. So, um, I'm interested also to hear Deborah's take on how people adjusted to that, because there's a big part of this as well as trust, that one of the big difficulties about people working from home was that in traditional companies, management mightn't trust the workers to actually do the work once they are away from their supervision. So suddenly we let the people loose and we discovered that they actually did quite well. And one thing that I am a little worried about is that now there are protections coming in again and more interference of people looking over your shoulder in a digital way. So I'm interested as to how Deborah sees this um, panning out as well. Yeah, I think that looking over your shoulder thing is really interesting and worrying because apparently that on digitally you can tell whether somebody's uh, working or not. And it's going to be, it's probably about whether or not they're moving their mouse. So I'm just waiting for somebody to develop the technology that can move your mouse while you're not actually in the room and on the golf course so that your boss will think you're working. But I think that the whole thing about trust is really important because you're right. People really wanted to work from home before and they weren't trusted to do so. And then suddenly it's absolutely compulsory and they have to make it work. And it's been really hard for some people. And 
it's really affected people in different ways as well. And I think that this question about cohesive growth is a really important one because from a, a human perspective, we've got to bring everybody along together. And one of the things that's been really interesting is that the leaders who were, some of the leaders who were most highly valued before are not the leaders who are most valued now. So the kind of guys, we all know them, that would have strutted around the office and really put on a good show, had not really built trust to the same level as some of the quieter guys who just got on with the work and really had already built trust and empathy with their teams. So when they went online and they were running team meetings and having to ask their members of their team, how are you? Are you really okay? And uh, what help do you need from me? They actually believed that they meant it. And so they did feel cared for and supported by that kind of leader. Whereas the other kind of leader just wasn't getting the performance and the productivity then afterwards. So Is it the end of micromanagement? Let's hope so. I, I'm, I completely agree with what Raymond said. There is a risk that micromanagement is going to go online and go all techie on us. But actually, there are much better ways of managing people that don't involve knowing what they're doing every minute of the day. It's funny, you know, it's funny. I, I can almost sense there's a couple of dichotomies maybe panning out, right? And I'm not I'm not a futurist and I can't see the future, but on the one hand, we're kind of moving into globalization mark two, whereas because everybody's connected online, but conversely, there's, you know, we're going to talk about censorship and I think that's rising. And then, but the the first thing I wanted to address back to what you were saying, Deborah, I, I do see a massive, because we're all much more super sensitive now, right? We're all burnt out and there's nobody who's not affected by this. So I do see that there's going to be more awareness around diversity and inclusion, gender balance, trust-based communication, um, cultural cohesion, um, and and the need to keep teams together remotely. And I think there's huge opportunity there, but none of this has really been tested on this grand scale. So it'll be interesting in 50 years how history sees this period. Is this really going to be a period of massive change or we just... I mean, how will employers expect everybody to come back to work again in the future when this pandemic passes? How could they? Do you really see this as a big shifting change period? They will not be able to insist is the bottom line. If if you said, okay, because HR people will say, if we thought it was difficult getting people to work from home, that was nowhere near as hard as trying to get them back during those few weeks when we thought we were coming back to work. It was actually much harder because a lot of people had got used to it. But they're actually finding now that people have real preferences and also they have needs. So there are some people that really don't work well from home. And so some of the work that HR people do is that consultation that says, actually, when we are able to bring a few people back in, obviously, they can't bring everybody back in because of social distancing, then these are the people that we'll have at the top of the list because they've put their hands up and said, I want to come back into the office. Other people, maybe they're going to have to persuade them to come back in just one day a week. So the whole landscape, I think, legally has changed as well. 
It's it's uh, one of the things, just jumping back to you talking about people working from home and software, there is a software actually which is available where if you have someone working from home, it actually watches their screens and actually takes screenshots of what the people are doing over the period of time. And then someone in the office can go and look to see what work they've been on. And the reason I know the software is because uh, a lot of PR agencies in Asia use this because, as you know, in Asia, a lot of people work in the PR virtual assistance around the rest of the world. So that software is there. The other part of it as well is trust, the element of trust. And with a lot of people who have come and start working at home, I know some people that were doing on an eight-hour day, they are now getting their day completely done in two hours when they were in the office for eight hours. There's also a stage of laziness kicking in with some people as well. As we move forward, I believe that you'll have a sort of a split week. Maybe somebody will come into the office two days a week. So everything will be shared desks and then they'll work home for three. So the offices will reduce. And we know in Dublin that the offices, large organizations are looking for smaller spaces because they're going to be rotating on it as well. That brings into the innovation and Raymond, are you, with the companies that you're speaking to and you're saying that you're extremely busy in that, are you finding this is one of the conversations that you're having with the companies that you're speaking to? Yes, there's a lot of hybrid conversations coming as well. You're, you're right that people will come into the office and that you may have smaller numbers of people wanting to go into the office or people thinking that they can work three days a week in the office and two days a week at home. And then the next thing when you think about that is part of the reason for going to the office as well is the interaction with people that some people are missing the, you know, the possibility of sitting out and at 11 o'clock having a cup of coffee with your friends. So another option, apart from going to the old office that you used to go to, if the commute is one hour, they're now looking at possibilities of having hubs, which may not be in the place where your previous office was, but it's somewhere between where you are living and your office, and that in those hubs that people can congregate, they can have meeting rooms, that they can uh, explore ideas in face-to-face meetings rather than these uh, Zoom meetings that people are so fatigued with. And then they can come back home and they can do, you know, concentrated, deep work, uh, not necessarily even being monitored by their PC and their clicks. Raymond, all those things happening. That that's a great point, and and maybe I'll swing that back to Deborah. You, you mentioned knowledge management, right? And one of the big things that I keep hearing is a how will the younger generations be mentored when old white haired guys like like Joe and me <laughs> aren't in the office, right? That's the first thing, and the second thing is that knowledge management, right? Eighty percent of knowledge in the West is tacit; it's in the old gray-haired people, right? And if we're not around, how are organizations going to retain that stuff? This is huge shift, isn't it, potentially? I think that's a really interesting one because with all the developments around AI, and I use the term loosely, I really thought that knowledge management would be one area where you'd they would really get traction on that. But whoever I ask about this, it's actually not happening. It's trying to get stuff out of somebody's brain onto a machine is proving much harder, I think, than we ever thought. So I think that's a really interesting question. And also, I think, I find as well, there's a a real generational shift. 
And so younger people coming into the workforce don't seem as ready to take on learning. Have you ever, do you try and teach your, your, the young people in your family stuff? And actually they have to kind of have a go and get it wrong before they'll say, okay, right now I'm going to let you show me how to do it. So I do think that that is an area that really does need some innovation, actually. I'll I'll turn the question back a little bit, Simon, as well, though. You talked about the young people and the mentoring they need from us. The one thing that I found was that, you know, when we're talking about tools like Zoom or getting things set up, the young people have no problem adapting to those uh, tools and the technologies, the communications. There may be a situation where they don't necessarily need our mentorship too much. They're able to self-organize. They're able to get ad hoc networks. They can form a network for a project, break up the network and go to another one. They're not as tied to the types of hierarchies that some of the people with grayer hair are used to. Well, with software, it goes back to the old time when, you know, you got the video recorder back in the house and we all remember the video recorder and your father go, what you doing that? And the young people and we would know how to set up a TV or set up the video recorder because we were interested in what was happening and how we could do this. So technology wise, you know, the, the millennials and the, you know, the X's and the Y's, no, this is where they're grown up. We were the ones that had to adapt because, you know, when we tell stories about, oh, we used to have a phone in the corner and they'd laugh at you, you know. So technology, I don't see the issue. I do see where the world is developing is the consciousness of people of the, this decade and how they'll be able to interact on, on a personal and spiritual level moving forward. That's really interesting, Joe, because there's a huge amount of chat right now about how do the younger generations pick up the, quote, soft skills? We Older people like us talk about soft skills, the need to be, you know, self-aware and resilience and awareness and influencing skills. And there's a lot of chat about this, but it sounds that I guess I'd pose this question, kind of turning on his head. Are we just looking at this from our perspective? Maybe the younger generations, instead of having to need soft skills, are using new types of power skills, right, that we don't know about. Is that kind of what you're saying, Raymond? Of course we are looking at it from our view. That's the inherent human bias. Uh, But it's not all a bad thing either. Um, As I said, it's not just about the technology, that the young people are able to form these ad hoc networks. They can do a project, they can break down a project, they can associate with different people, they can bring in people, they can drop people. One thing that I think that the grey hairs do help is the perspective we can bring. When this coronavirus crisis hit, for us, it's not the first crisis. We've seen lots of crises come and go. And one thing that gave a lot of the older people strength to carry through this is that they have seen things happen which were terrible and that still they could survive and come back afterwards, and that the world did come back. Well, we, we're going to take a break now. But before we take the break, I want I just want to ask you one thing moving forward. Please refrain from saying old when you say talk about me. Okay? <laughs> I, well, I wasn't talking about belief. you, Joe. I am Present in company belief. accepted. <laughs> I am in the belief that I am young, fit. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Business Eye, sponsored by your local enterprise office in Dunleary Ratdown. Together, we're making it happen. 
Hello and welcome back. And uh, thanks again to uh, Dunleary Rathdown County Council uh, Local Enterprise Office. Like, we were just talking before the break about innovation. And Raymond, I was listening recently, and I can't remember who it was. It was an expert, and he was saying that for innovation, he studied all the different innovation periods through history since the, the Dutch tulip period in the 1600s. And he was saying that there's a triangle, right? Whenever you have boom periods, three things are present. Number one is low interest rates, and we're at historically low interest rates. The second side of that triangle is relative ease of buying and selling stock and properties, and that's accomplished now. And the third thing, and this is where I want to bring it to you, is the condition for innovation spark, right? And and he was suggesting that with the pandemic increasing genome sequencing and vaccines, this is a perfect soup for a massive period of innovation going forward. What, what do you think about that? Yes, uh, it's interesting that you talked about those three different things that you said that it was, I took notes on this, it was low interest, um, the ease of getting uh, access to properties, and then also the innovation spark. Um, the innovation spark that has come during this, if you look at the immunology, for example, lots of people have spent a lot of energy on developing techniques in immunology. The vaccines, like the speed that we came to market with vaccines, and within a few days of each other, different vaccine solutions being announced on the market has been phenomenal. Rather than taking you know six years to develop a new vaccine, this time last year, people still didn't understand the coronavirus. They were just starting to sequence the genome. And now we have vaccines being put into people in our population. So the technologies have advanced very quickly during that time. You see a lot of companies who were jumping on and building new machines or people were building ventilators or testing and and. There are so many going to market that it's, you know, I believe it's the, you know, the 60, the 80, 20 rule that a lot of these will lose because they didn't get to market in close to time. It's, it's example like masks, um, looking at masks and everybody is, was wearing masks and everyone purchasing masks on, on a massive scale. But I was down in the local shop and I says, how's your mask sales going? And he laughed. He says, they're not really going you know, because everyone bought a pack of 10 and they're, they're, you know, everyone's wearing the same mask every day in, in and out. And he says, I, I, I just, he said to me, I hope this continues on a little bit longer because I've, I've a lot of stuff to get rid of. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, it's so. funny because it also changes uh, consumer patterns. For example, in cosmetics that um, I've seen the figures that the sales of lipstick are way down because people are covering their mouths so they don't need the lipstick. But the sales of mascara is up because now everybody is looking at the eyes. So you get all these shifts that nobody could have predicted the secondary effects of the, uh, the pandemic. Yeah, and in terms, of, in terms of shifts, Deborah, in terms of organizations and teamwork and motivation and all this sort of stuff, are you, what, are you, what are you seeing in terms of how this is, is this, this must already be impacting how you motivate and keep teams together and, and you inform them? And how, what, what are you seeing panning out? I'm seeing real differences between different organizations. And I think some of it is going to be based on the sector that they're in. So, for example, um, a company of architects and building designers 
they're finding that actually their older book is holding up and they've got young, bright, clever people that had a really good social vibe going before the pandemic and they're managing to keep that going. And so they feel like they're all pulling together healthily. And then other organisations and quite likely in a sector where they're really being hit hard and they're having to make people redundant. Of course, furlough quite often leads to redundancy. So people might be on furlough. Are you calling it that in Ireland? Apologies if not. Yep, it's the same. Yep, great. So um, there's huge uncertainty. And then, of course, uh, people don't know what their future holds. And in those organisations, they're having to face some really, really tough decisions. And I think their leaders are feeling just so stressed and sort of borne down by the whole thing. And whether it's um, the pressure or whether it's that that they just weren't that kind of person in the first place, because obviously that happens too, they're not pulling the organisation together and it, you can get the sense that it's just falling apart. So I find, I think there's an enormous variety. I'll just jump in there. But I was speaking to certain clients as well that we're finding that a lot of the younger people are finding it very difficult as well. They're the ones that are dealing with a lot of stress, especially being out of that uh, communication or the connection with many staff we're okay because the age group that we are we grew up being bored you know we we had we switched on the tv at six o'clock you know that was it we had four channels to choose from and everything else was an instant gratification you had to wait so we grew up being bored so it's okay for us it's the other people that is you know instant gratification the younger people are the ones that are finding this a little bit difficult Personally, myself, as Simon will know, I did all my business on Zoom. I have clients all over the world. So I was using this process well before COVID even kicked in. What's happened to me is that everything now for me is is Zoom. And I am done with it. I miss the speaking events. I miss being in the, the studio. I miss, you know, speaking to a hundred people on a stage um, and sharing a laugh. I miss that. I am not trying to replicate that at the moment on Zoom. I have parked that part of the business because I'm not going to be like everyone else, jumping on, on Zoom, listening to some motivational speakers for a long time Listen to one or two like yourself there, but I, I found your talk excellent. But there was the majority of others I just kind of switched off. I went, you know, so I don't want to replicate that. And I think everyone is burnt out with doing business this way. I think, yeah. that's, you know, we're all pretending that it's good and we're brilliant and all. But behind everything, there's an, there's an underline with everyone, which is reality is it's complete BS. That's my thoughts on it. I might just pick up on that, Joe, and pass it over to Raymond again. And, and uh, I, I did an article for Irish Tech News a while ago, and and I, uh, some of the research I did was that something like 90 or 95% of innovation that's been created down through humankind has been face-to-face, come out of face-to-face interaction. 
I don't know whether that's right. You're, you're the expert. But, but, but if that is right, how is that going to play out, assuming we're going to be in this remote world for the next year to, God forbid, five years? Are we going to continue innovating or are we going to innovate in a completely different way? Or What, what do you think? Um, I think that people do need to continue thinking about innovation. Innovation is always dealing with uncertainty. And God knows we've had a lot of uncertainty last year. But that's what innovators are used to doing. So we come up with different ways of doing it. And I understand what you're saying as well, Joe, that lots of people are trying to find a way to replicate or replace um, the way that was doing before and bringing it back the way it's doing before. But most potential comes from finding new ways of doing it. Okay, we keep the good parts, but we also look for new interesting things. Um, You know, people have talked about the psychology and how people are burnt out. But on the other side as well, I've seen work-life balance shifting for a lot of people. That if you're able to do away with, you know, a one-hour commute, and that's both ways is two hours per day. Lots of people are taking the opportunity that if you take that two-hour commute, you can take 30 minutes extra in bed, not to be lazy, but to get to about the right amount of sleep that you should be getting anyway. You could take 30 minutes for exercise, 30 minutes for helping somebody else, and 30 minutes just for getting your peace of mind. So those kinds of things do come into your life. As long as you have the discipline of not using that extra two hours, either to do more work and be more on demand and more available for people, or to spend it burning out, you know, watching your on-demand TV. See, that's where it is because I had eliminated all them anyway before COVID because I was working in that environment and where I used to enjoy that drive to somewhere, which was the break from it. So and then I kind of go, okay, now my everything else, because, you know, going to the station or whatever, those small times, was that that connection and i think we can say this is all wonderful and it's all brilliant but i think this time round a year on i think people are suffering more now than we actually realize we can fake it but i think people are we have to be well, well if, if i can sound an optimistic note um outside of business even i'm seeing a great sense of community you know for example in my neighborhood we have a local whatsapp group and people of all ages, you know, we talk about young and old, but, you know, there's some very elderly people on this WhatsApp group. And we're able to keep our social distance, well, keep our physical distance, but keep a social connection with those people. Because, you know, so, something happens, you know, a neighbor's bin blows over and somebody says, oh, yeah, we'll go out and we'll pick it up for her because we don't want her to be coming out and, and handling things outside. So I'm seeing this wonderful community of neighbors who I didn't even know very well before this started. Mm. And if one thing comes out of this, I hope that we can keep this community feeling after we go back to what people call the new normal. Well, uh, yes. Sorry, sorry, Simon. I agree. But there's one thing I'm glad I am not. And that is, I'm glad I'm not dating. I'm glad I'm not 20 anymore. And, and on, on, you know, going out to try and, as we used to say, score, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that, that is gone on it. That, that that went for me decades ago. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't take Just pick, just picking up on that. On, on, you mentioned WhatsApp, Raymond, and we might just pivot a little bit into the whole world of tech companies because I, I tell just you what we, I tell you what we'll do. Um, let's take a quick break, um, and then we'll jump back in and we'll talk about WhatsApp then. And and okay, you're listening to Business Eye. Sponsored by your local enterprise office in Dunleary Ratdown. Together, we're making it happen. 
Okay, guys, welcome back again. Just want to say thank you to our sponsor, which is the local enterprise office in Dunleary Ratdown. Deborah, just before the break, we were talking about the, we could call it the burnout, the fatigue and everything about Zoom um, and meetings. What's your thoughts on it at the moment? Well, I think to start with, people just did everything on Zoom and now they're being more selective. And I find more people are saying, let's just do it on the phone because I'm Zoomed out. Um, but my most of my work used to be standing in front of a group, you know, working with a group of uh, leaders or managers or going and seeing clients. And I have to say, I appreciate the fact that I don't waste so much time traveling. Uh, so I think there's like a, there are swings and roundabouts with it, aren't there? But people are definitely getting fed up of Zooming. And I think finding that you really have to put a lot of effort into it. So I have one colleague who does a similar work to me and he actually has worked so hard at it. He inspired me because he said, I think I get more interaction now when I'm running a virtual workshop than I actually did when I was running it face to face. Because there'd always be the shy, quiet person who actually wouldn't speak if they were in a room with other people. But what I do is I get them to put their comments into chat and then I pick up on them so I actually make sure that everybody does participate so I think there are real skills that we can learn but looking at a screen is exhausting all the other stimulation that we get when we're actually face to face with people I think you're right it's because you're forced to focus you're forced to look at each other for half an hour an hour and I think there's real benefits from a communication perspective and a productivity perspective, but I think the exhaustion levels are enhanced. I certainly feel exhausted, more exhausted at the end of the day, and I'm not commuting. But I do think there's a, the scope for more productivity, you know? But it depends, it depends on... Who, the, the, there's another thing that I just wanted to, maybe if I can pivot into, and that's the whole area of online communication. And so, for example, this, this morning, I got a message from a business partner based in Hong Kong saying... Um, Simon, I think we need to be careful communicating on WhatsApp, right? And and I'm not going to get into the politics of any of this sort of stuff. But um, Raymond, what are, what are your senses around the, you know, we're all communicating online. We're all relying on these tech companies, and yet they do seem to have a lot of power, right? Are you? What, what's your view in this space? Um, my view in this space is that a lot of companies have developed some very interesting tools. So the tools are very powerful. And we are getting most of them for free. So you can get premium subscriptions to various tools, but most people, by and large, are subscribing to lots of tools they're getting for free. And it has to be paid for somewhere. So it tends to be paid for in, you you see something like a search engine. And the search engine, their business isn't search. Their business is advertising. So you will see that these companies have to find a way to get a financial return. And some of them start off, with real altruism or they've got deep pocketed investors but at some stage they need to start paying back the investors or at some stage they need to be paying the developers as they grow they need to have more cloud storage space and they need to have those facilities so they need to find a way to be able to pay for it i would agree with you on on that but you also have to realize that you know people vote with their feet and the, the consumer is king um and what we're, we're finding at the moment has been the big scare about uh, WhatsApp at the moment. As you know, uh, Facebook bought 
WhatsApp for 19 billion. They vowed to their uh, their clientele or their customers that they weren't going to be changing any policies, but we knew they would. Um, Facebook. What I what I one of the things which scares me about Facebook is is their algorithms and using the joint computers that I don't know did everyone see that program on Netflix about Facebook where they stop on the picture and it it's all gone into that database which is targeting us and um, one of the things which why so many people at the moment are jumping to signal or telegram because they feel their privacy is is being attacked our privacy at the moment we don't we don't have any privacy at the moment but it's it, it's for that little bit that we feel that we have is being attacked and that's you know are they going to be jumping in and looking at you know people are saying that they're going to be looking at our emails that we're going to be looking at our messages logging onto our camera onto our voice so all these things worry people yes there is advertising but i don't there's one thing that i want to throw out to you is on this is there's one thing that the the likes of Facebook haven't realized and the likes of Twitter and all. And we talk about censorship where they've, they've come in and they've they've don't like the idea of one part of a conversation, especially in a political arena. And they've sort of censored all that. But I don't think what they realized was that with all the, the targeting and all the way their algorithms can map out and we know can steer a conversation, and we've seen this through, through years, that algorithms can't read people's consciousness. And there's the biggest thing that has caused the jump from people to move because they, I'm sure they weren't thinking that this was going to happen on such a large level. This, this is a huge issue. I mean, De- Deborah, what, what do you think from a corporate HR perspective? I mean, companies are reliant on these big giants. And, you know, Google went down a couple of months ago and my G drive went down and I was in a panic for about half an hour. How, how do you think companies uh, and, and HR departments and C-suites are thinking about their reliance or even over-reliance on these big tech companies who are watching, you know, they're watching stuff. What, what, are, are businesses really worried about this or are they just busy coping with other stuff? What do you think before we come back to Raymond? Yeah, I think that's the difficulty is you have to commit to one or the other, don't you? So a company I know are just going across from Microsoft to Google, the whole thing, the whole company, everybody in that company is having to relearn some of the, the most basic tools that they use every day. And somebody, you kind of think, why would a company do that? Well, there's obviously got to be a cost factor, but whether they actually realise that, that that cost, there is a cost throughout the organisation of people having to move from one platform to another. But I think the... Um, the interesting thing about the power that tech giants have, and you talked about WhatsApp and Facebook, is that we've always had big corporates who have power, but these guys do literally also have the technology. And it's, it's, uh, it makes them even more powerful. Yeah, no, I agree. I might throw them that. That's perfect segue over to Raymond. So there seems to be a kind of a weird dichotomy here that, that we need to innovate ourselves out of this period, right? And and that small business, medium business, large business. And yet increasingly, conversely, power seems to be you know congregating in the hands of these big tech companies. So how does everybody else innovate out of this period? That's my question. <laughs> it is one of the big difficulties because the large incumbent 
companies have the resources. They also, you know, people talk about these small scrappy companies and they're nimble and they're flexible and that they come up with all these ideas. Don't forget that the large companies have large research institutions. Those large research institutions might even have professors on their uh, payroll. They may have Nobel laureates on their payroll. They're generating huge results. So when people are coming out of universities, they're not saying, I want to go into the scrappy startup. They are saying that I want to go, if they're top class researchers, they want to go to the places where the top class research is being done. So this perpetuates power perpetuating power. So that is one element of it. Um, coming back to what Deborah said, there was a time when the IT departments in companies wanted to control everything from a security point of view. And then you got this wave of BYOD, bring your own device, where companies had, for example, Blackberries, for all of us who are old enough to remember Blackberries, and the Blackberries were a secure device. And a lot of workers had their iPhone and they wanted to have their cool device and they wanted to bring that. And now the corporate IT people had to get their IT systems talking to people's personal devices. And there was already a leakage of uh, the personal security in that point. So that's one thing. Another thing is that you're saying about what's the move from, for example, from Microsoft to Google. You know, we've been talking about IT. I work in the world of IP, which is intellectual property. In other words, it's the world of ideas and people getting paid for those ideas. But in the world of Google, there's a huge attraction to getting things for free. So people are getting these excellent services. You know, you're getting Gmail, you mentioned there, but you've got Google Maps, you've got all kinds of um, searches, you've got all kinds of um, technologies that Google and other companies like them are providing. You've got Facebook providing very interesting services, WhatsApp, who's now owned by Facebook, that they're becoming used much more by corporates because people believe about the encryption but somehow, somewhere, somebody has to pay for it. And what's happening in a lot of cases is people are paying for it with their private data or with insights about their behavior. But most people aren't too bothered about it. And they let that happen because of the attractiveness of free. And there is this danger. And you know, I, you know, I know that I'm a vested interest in saying that you know, people need to pay for ideas, um, but they are paying for them in a different way. Okay, well, a large organization, big tech, if they see someone bringing out a product, what do they do? Do they buy the product up and store it away, take it off the market? Are the big techs, and we could say the four big techs, look at Amazon, they just pulled uh, the servers off uh, Parler there last weekend and the company just went bust, can't do anything about it. Are they the rubber barons of past? Are these companies the big guys of the oil or the railway roads that we know in the past that control things? And are we going to have to look at these very closely and make decisions? Because it is going to affect us in the next, in the next couple of years moving forward. Yes, um, innovation is risky. So companies that have deep pockets and can afford to take that risk can try invest, investing in projects. But the other way they can do it as well is that, you know, because even with the big companies and the deep pockets, they may not be sure of what you're going to get out of it. Um, Einstein said that if we knew what it was we were looking for, we wouldn't call it research, would we? So you get an unexpected result coming from this. And what happens as well then is with small companies, sometimes one of those gets an unexpected success. And for one of the large companies, this is a very cheap way of de-risking their innovation. 
because they don't need to invest in 20 different companies that one of them could pop. They just wait for the other 19 to fade away and they buy the one that survives. And the one that survives has de-risked the inv investment in innovation. And that's where it came from, you know, the Facebook's investment in WhatsApp, which seemed like a huge investment at the time. But in retrospect, it was a very earth-shifting investment. And now Facebook is changing the terms or WhatsApp are changing the terms, um, uh, despite a lot of people's protestations at the time. Yeah. Don't forget, we've had six years since then. Yeah. So uh, you've had six good years of being able to get WhatsApp for free without these um, terms being changed significantly. Ray Brayman, so, so many people seem to be worried about these big tech, big techs for all these reasons. Do you think they're worrying too much? Do you think this is just this is an inevitable part of the, 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 the uh, innovation journey? Um, well, it depends on what you mean by some people are worrying too much. You know, like some people, they mightn't be worrying enough. Um, so I, I always worry about complacency and what could creep up on you if you're not alert. So it's important to be alert. And on the other end of that scale, you know, we talked about well-being and peace of mind. You don't be worrying about everything all the time either. So it's a, an informed alertness to be careful about these things and to take a balanced view of it. Well, I think, um, I think a lot of people are worried because if you look at Signal, how many people jumped onto Signal in the last couple of days and the millions of people are signing up. My phone keeps lighting up every five minutes with someone signing up to Signal. Guys, we're coming to the end. Um, Deborah, if someone wants to find you, where can people locate you um, and reach out to you if they want to have a further conversation with you? And the same down with yourself, Raymond. LinkedIn is great for me. Deborah Wilkes, you'll find me on there. And same for me. I'm very commonly found on LinkedIn. Or even if you just want to Google IP coach, I come up as one of the top IP coaches in the world. So it's very easy to find me using the Google that we've much maligned during this call. Thanks, everybody. It's been a wonderful show. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting here that I can be found at the back of my house here but apart from that i can be found on linkedin and simonhaig.com and uh, i think you know we talked about some you know really deep subjects here and i think we're at a real kind of crossroads from a corporate management perspective from an, from a people perspective from an innovation perspective and obviously from a health perspective and i think this is a real period of reflection so i think this was a great chat and thank you both thank you deborah and thank you raymond thank you that was great thank you it was a pleasure thank i you. really enjoyed it thank you Thanks. And thank you, guys. And I'll talk to you later. Well, we are going to finish up today on a song uh, which is by Neil Fox and it's Dear Facebook. And it's a funny song about censorship and being locked in jail as well. Dear Facebook, hope you're doing fine and life is treating you. Well, I have this one thing on my mind And I just have to tell you
it folks for another week of business i want to thank our guests and uh, delighted to be back with simon again so till next friday have a super weekend and uh we'll talk to you then take care bye